Well, before we get started in the message, I have some exciting news to share with you about this upcoming September. And I'm not referring to the fact that we're launching a new campus in Bonnie Dune. That is exciting, uh, but we've already announced that. Uh, what I'm referring to is actually the opening of the Beulah Training Institute, or BTI for short. Thank you. You don't even know what it is yet. But they, <laughs> it is exciting. It really is. Um, so back in 1915, before Beulah was a local church, the Beulah Mission Training School existed, which was later renamed as the Beulah Training, oh, sorry, the Edmonton Bible Institute. It was a place where people could grow in their theology and faith um, while deepening in their spiritual life and their, their love for the Bible. It was a place where um, people would be equipped for the work of ministry, as we read about in Ephesians 4. And it was a place where disciples were trained and raised up, as we read about in Matthew chapter 9, because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And so over 100 years later, uh, what we're basically doing is we're restarting what already was. Uh, we've officially partnered with Ambrose University to create an Edmonton-based, holistic, part-time, uh, affordable, and accredited two-year program where four things will happen. Uh, number one, you will grow in your understanding of the Bible and theology while deepening in your spiritual life and faith. Uh, two, you will develop leadership competencies that you can use in your workplace and in ministry. Uh, three, you'll engage in an exciting ministry environment to apply what you've learned. And four, uh, you'll be equipped to live out your faith and share it in your everyday life. And all of this is gonna take place right here at Beulah in Greater Edmonton. Now we only have 50 spots, okay? This first year we only have 50 spots. Um, so if you wanna learn more about the courses, uh, how much time is required weekly, which night of the week we would meet because it is a part-time program, uh, the cost, how to apply, all the details, you can just go to beulah.ca slash BTI. You know, my hope and prayer is that our first cohort would be multi-generational that we would see people from every generation a part of this. It would be multi-ethnic and multi-campus. So if you wanna dig deeper into knowing Jesus deeply and being known by him fully through this program, then please go to beulah.ca slash BTI. All right, uh, so before moving back to Edmonton in 2019, uh, my family and I, we were living in Music City, USA. Uh, we were living in Nashville, Tennessee the home of country music, bluegrass, and the Grand Ole Opry. It's also the home of the Nashville Predators, Nashville Hot Chicken, a lot of bachelorette parties, um, unfortunately. Uh, big belt buckles and cowboy hats, like, everywhere. Uh, we moved there in 2014 because I was hired to be the director of church multiplication for Lifeway Christian Resources. Now, I was hired to help this $500 million a year company uh, to create a strategy to resource and help churches multiply. So Christina, Victoria, Adeline, Macarius, and I, we all got our visas and headed down south. And now to give you a sense as to what we did when we lived there for five years, I was kind of tallying up and, and in prep for this message, kind of counting, okay, what exactly did we do? Um, I spoke at about 88 conferences on discipleship, leadership, and church multiplication. Um, I spoke every other week, I preached every other week at my church, our local church uh, in our neighborhood that we were members of. 
I consulted regularly with pastors and church leaders. As a part of my work at Lifeway, I started a business to resource pastors. I wrote three traditionally published books and four eBooks. And with the three podcasts that I help co-host, uh, the cumulative downloads were three million. So I, you know, I, I share all that because I think things were going well, right? Um, from a career standpoint. And as much as things were going well from all accounts, you know, the plan was never to stay there forever. Uh, we knew that God had called us there for a reason, uh, but it was only for a season. And it was only ever going to be for a season because we knew that uh, we were called to Canada. Uh, but it's interesting because the longer we were there, the more comfortable it felt. I mean, we, we loved our neighbors. We loved our church. Uh, we loved um, our community. We loved everything about our life there. And the longer we lived there, I mean, our, our marriage was flourishing, our kids were blooming, our, our roots were going down deep, and, and we just felt settled, and, and it felt like home until the fall of 2018. And that's when a few events took place. Uh, for one, the president of our company announced that he was retiring, so that's a huge change. Uh, we then got our green cards, which meant that we could now live anywhere and, and move anywhere that we wanted. Um, and as all that was happening, our hearts were becoming unsettled and, and we began feeling like God was beginning to uproot us. We didn't know why, uh, but in particular, but we just felt like he was uprooting us. And then when I came up to Beulah in January 2019 to uh, speak at the staff retreat and, and preach on the weekend, uh, that's when Christina and I heard God beginning to whisper to us, it's time to come back. Have you ever experienced a similar situation? Now, I'm not talking about moving to Nashville and back. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about more in a general sense, where God was asking you to take a risk. To leave behind what's comfortable and, and move into the uncomfortable. To move from what's known to unknown, to say yes, even though you don't really know fully what you're saying yes to, and, and to leave behind certainty to move into uncertainty. Have you ever felt, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever felt like God was leading you into a risk like that? Now when you think about it, risk is an interesting concept. It's an interesting word. In the dictionary, it's defined as a situation involving exposure to danger. So in health, there are risk factors. In security and government, there are risk assessments, and in, in insurance and finance, there's risk management. So when you think about risk and, and your, uh, your attitude toward it, uh, you can be anywhere along the spectrum, right? You can be risk averse, you can be risk natural, risk seeking, risk taking, or just plain risque. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, so how comfortable are you with risks? Now, really, I, I want you to think about this. Like, how comfortable are you with risks? When's the last time you took it, and what happened when you did? Well, today we're going to wrap up our series, Dear Church, uh, by exploring a risk that someone named Ananias in the Bible took, and why it's always worth it to take the kind of risks that he did. Now, before we read about this particular Ananias, I just wanted to clarify that we're not talking about the Ananias in Acts chapter 5 
in Jerusalem who deceived the leaders of the church by lying. Okay, we're not talking about that Ananias. And we're not talking about the high priest Ananias, the Jewish high priest in the Sanhedrin, who Paul testified before in Acts 23. Uh, we're talking about a different Ananias, the Ananias in Acts chapter 9, the Ananias in Damascus. So let's read about this Ananias in Acts chapter 9, starting from verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, the light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, now there is a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. <clears throat> and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's the authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling um, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Well, Beulah Church family, my prayer is that we would be the kind of disciples and the kind of church that would always take the kind of risks that Ananias took. So let's talk about what happened here. Uh, there are three main characters in this story, Saul, Ananias, and Jesus. So let's explore all three of them and start by starting with Saul. If you take a look at verse one, we see that Saul is against the church, he is against the disciples, and he is against Jesus since he is breathing threats we know this because he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, for some context, Saul was leading the charge of persecuting the church and imprisoning anyone who is a disciple of Jesus. But he wasn't some random extremist or terrorist. No, he was a, a Jew who was born into a respected family, into a, into, born into a family of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin from Tarsus of Cilicia. Uh, which meant that he had Roman citizenship as well, and he could speak Greek. Uh, furthermore, he studied under someone uh, called Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel, this is a big deal. He's the grandson of uh, a famous teacher called 
Hillel, whose Pharisaic teachings uh, still exist today and people still follow his line of teachings to this day. So he was studying with Hillel's grandson. And while studying under Gamaliel, I mean, he advanced beyond all of his peers. He became so zealous for the faith that he basically wanted to stop everyone who was apostatizing or leaving the faith in any which way. So there were these Christians who used to be Jews who used to follow God in his perspective, who had left God, left the faith, and, and he was on a mission to bring them back. So he wanted to stop the growth of the early church. He, was, he wanted to stop the spread of Jesus' teaching. He wanted to go to Damascus to do that. So we read in verse one and two that he went to the high priest as a result and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. But as he was getting to Damascus, as he was getting near, we read that he was blinded by a flashing light and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, a little bit after that, we read that all of his traveling companions, they heard that same something, uh, but they didn't quite know who it was or they didn't really couldn't really recognize the voice either. So just imagine, okay, before we get there, just imagine if you were one of Saul's traveling companions, right? Place yourself in one of their shoes. Uh, you're going from Jerusalem to Damascus. You're on a mission with the great Saul who studied with Gamaliel. And along the way, you were probably laughing at the fact that you stoned this heretic, Stephen, right? And you're, and you're probably not only laughing about that and, and talking about how great it was going to be to imprison people and bring them back to Damascus, but you're, you're probably talking about uh, what type of rock you threw to hit Stephen, and, and you're probably talking about how you threw it, right? Like, was it like a Randy Johnson, like, sidearm, or were you going overhand, or maybe you just got the biggest rock you could find, and you went like this, right? I mean, I don't know, right? I don't know what specifically the traveling companions were talking about, but I'm sure they were talking about something like that on that long journey to imprison Christians. And then all of a sudden you hear, you see a blinding, you're, you're, you're blinded by this light. You hear this sound. You don't recognize the voice uh, and you can't even quite make out what's being said, but you hear someone saying something and you hear a loud thud. Well, when you come to your senses and can start seeing again, you realize that it was Saul He's on the ground and you look around for the voice and you don't see anyone, right? You don't see who that voice could have come from or, or even what that was, or maybe it was just thunder. You don't quite know. And though your eyes are open, uh, you see that Saul's eyes, though, though his eyes are open, he can't actually see. Okay, so talk about crazy, right? Like if you had walked through and you were a part of that experience. Now we don't quite know after that, what happened uh, and what sort of conversation Saul then had with his traveling companions. But we do know that in verse 8 and 9, they took him by the hand, the traveling companions took Saul by the hand and led Saul into Damascus. And Saul was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Okay, so why do you think Saul went without food and drink for three days? Like, was this some sort of 
organic home remedy, locally sourced, right, to cure temporary blindness? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe, I don't think so though. Uh, I, I think he didn't eat for the next three days because he was in shock. All right, we place ourselves in the traveling companion shoes. Let's try to place ourselves in Saul's shoes now. Like, this guy was on a mission. He was commissioned. He was on, you know, trying to, he, he was going, doing God's work, so he thought. And he was, he was just, and then, and then all of a sudden he was blinded and he couldn't, see and 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 he, he he heard God's voice and he didn't he's like wait a second Jesus is God and how is Jesus God Jesus is the one I'm persecuting and and like everything is being flipped upside down for Saul right he was convinced that Jesus was the false messiah leading the faithful away from God yet for some reason Jesus spoke to him right how right if you were Saul like how could this be happening right now, right? Jesus, in fact, he died on the cross. He's dead. So how could he appear to you and talk to you? Right? That's what Saul's wrestling with right now. Now, it's interesting. Saul's a man of faith, right? We, we clarified that. But as a man of faith, um, it is so interesting if you look at verse 5 what Saul says when he hears the voice. He says, who are you, Lord? He knew it was God speaking to him. That's why he said, Lord. If he thought it was anyone else, he probably would have said, who are you, sir? Right, or who are you? What's going on? Or get behind me, Satan. But when he heard the voice of Jesus, he heard the voice of God. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then to hear God respond to him, I am Jesus. <laughs> I am Jesus. And not just I am Jesus, but I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I mean, talk about mind and soul boggling for Saul. I mean, no wonder he went without food and drink for three days. So that's Saul. Uh, let's take a look at verse 10 and move to the second main character, who is Ananias. Uh, now, there's not a lot written about this Ananias, but when you take a look at verse 10, there are two things that we know specifically about him. That he was a disciple of Jesus, and that he lived in Damascus. Okay, so those are the two pieces of explicit information that we know about this man named Ananias. He's a disciple of Jesus, and he lives in Damascus. But when you look at how he acts and how he converses with Jesus over the next several verses, there's actually a lot that we can infer about him, and there's a lot that we can know, there are four things that we can know specifically about him in an implicit sort of manner. So the first thing that we see in the following verses is that he spent time with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. When, when Jesus called out to Ananias, take a look at what he said. He said, here I am Lord. What did Saul say? He said, who are you, Lord? He said, who are you, Lord? 
So he knew it was God, but he didn't know what was going on. Yet when Ananias heard the voice of Jesus, he didn't say, who are you, Lord? He said, here I am, Lord. This means that he knew Jesus. This means that he recognized the voice of the great shepherd. This means that he could discern and distinguish the voice of Jesus from the voice of others, from the voice of his parents, from the voice of his past, from the voice of the enemy. He knew how to discern God's voice from every other thought and inkling. Now, we don't know how long Ananias was a disciple of Jesus for. And you know what? We don't even know if he knew Jesus when Jesus lived on earth. But what we do know is that he knew Jesus. Like he, not just, not, not, not up here, no, he, he knew Jesus. And he recognized his voice. Which means he regularly spent time with Jesus. The second thing that we can infer about Ananias is that he trusted Jesus. Now, let's go back to what, like how Ananias responded when Jesus spoke to him, right? Jesus said, Ananias, and Ananias said, here I am, Lord, right? He didn't say, what's up? What's going on? (laughs) What are you thinking about? Right, because if he said that, he could hear what God wanted what God was asking him to do, and then he could decide what he would, or how he would respond, right? No, he, he, he just said, here I am, Lord. He didn't even know what Jesus was going to say. He didn't even know what Jesus was going to ask him to do, but he said, here I am, Lord. Is that what your relationship with Jesus is like? But regardless of what he says, it's always, here I am, Lord. The reason he said that is because he trusted Jesus. Well, the third thing that we can infer about Ananias is that he prayed to Jesus. In verse 11 and 12, we see that um, Jesus told him what to do. And then in the following verses after that, from 13 to 16, uh, we see Ananias having a conversation with Jesus. Now, in this conversation, I don't see this as Ananias backing out of the here I am, Lord thing. I actually see this as Ananias simply having an open, honest, and genuine conversation with Jesus. That's how I see this. That's how I read this. And in fact, isn't that what prayer is? Having an open, honest, and genuine conversation with Jesus? By asking those questions, by dialoguing with Jesus, Ananias wasn't going back on his here I am, Lord. It's, it was, here I am, Lord. All right, so what do you want me to do again? <laughs> and he was wrestling. He was talking. Because right? that's the sort of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. Well, the last thing that we can infer about Ananias is that he took risks for Jesus. In verse 17, we read that Ananias not only went and entered the house that Saul was in, but he placed his hands on Saul. Now, as much as Ananias had just talked to Jesus and received instructions to do what he just did, 
I mean, just because he heard it from Jesus didn't mean that it was easy. It's one thing to say yes to God in the privacy of your own home. It's another thing to get up out of your comfort zone and to go to a foreign place, to go to a, the house of someone who is your enemy, right? And it's not even just you went to his house, but you went right up next to him and laid your hands on him. Remember, Saul was on a, an official business to persecute and destroy the church. He had permission to enter house after house and persecute Christians, drag men and women off to prison. And that's all Saul knew. Saul, no, that's all Ananias knew of Saul, right? Ananias was like, man, he, he was a part of persecuting and killing Stephen and all these others. And God, you want me to do what? So think about it. If you were in Ananias' shoes and you were walking from where you were staying to this place, do you think you would have doubted whether or not you had heard from God? Do you think Ananias doubted? Yeah. I think he probably took the long road to that house. <laughs> and every person he, even though maybe he would have been an introvert, I don't know, maybe he's an introvert, every, that day he acted like an extrovert and he met every single person along the way and asked them their life story, and was just hoping that God would maybe speak something differently to someone else. I don't know for sure, but I think that's what happened. Do you think Ananias was comfortable leaving behind what he knew? I don't think so. Do you think Ananias was comfortable leaving behind certainty to say yes to uncertainty? I mean, Ananias was taking a risk here, right? Uh, let's take a look at the definition of a risk again. A situation involving exposure to danger. This is what Ananias was doing. He was taking a risk. But church family, do you, do you, do you grasp like the significance of what just happened here? Ananias was exposing himself to danger by going to Saul. Yet, in spite of all the risks that he could have named, that were justifiable, he was, trying to, he was probably trying to rationalize away every single thing. And in spite of all of those risks, he said, here I am, Lord. Why did he say that? because his confidence wasn't in his circumstances. It was in a person. His confidence was in Jesus. So let's talk about this Jesus who his confidence was in. Isn't it interesting how Jesus awakened Saul? Isn't it interesting how he saved him? I don't know if you, if you caught this, but in verse five, after saying, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, Right after that, Jesus could have just simply told Saul how he was the Messiah. Right? I mean, he could have just told Saul, hey, you know what? 
all of the Old Testament that you studied, all of these prophecies about the coming Messiah. Yeah, so there's this one, I did it again. There's this one, yeah, I did that. Well, there's this one, I did that one too. And this one, this is how I did it. And he could have literally gone through every single prophecy and Saul being the academic and student that he was, he probably would have been like, oh yeah, you are the Messiah, I'm sorry. Right, and he probably would have follow Jesus right then and there. But instead of doing all of that, Jesus said this, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Why did, why did Jesus do this? Right? Why did he take this approach with Saul? Well, I believe it's because he wanted to intentionally partner with Ananias to awaken Saul. Now, did Jesus need Ananias? No, he didn't need Ananias to do what he did with Saul. He didn't need him, but he intentionally wanted to invite Ananias into one of the most incredible experiences that humans will ever experience on this side of eternity. He wanted to invite Ananias into seeing another person's eyes being opened and being awakened to him. And I'll tell you what, if you've never been a part of seeing someone give their life to Christ, I pray, my prayer and our prayers as a church is that every single one of us will be like Ananias and God will use us to do that with those we live, work, study, and play with. Because seeing another person's eyes be opened, their heart being awakened, like literally there's nothing better on this side of eternity than seeing that happen in someone's life. And because Jesus wanted Ananias and all of us to experience that. I believe that's why he shoulder-tapped Ananias to be a part of Saul's story here. So we see in verse 18 that after Ananias prayed for Saul, this is what happened with Saul, at once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. So Saul, uh, later he was renamed Paul, uh, after being awakened to Jesus, he was one of the foremost leaders of the early church and he wrote much of the New Testament. And as he was reflecting on what happened here, uh, he, wrote, uh, he wrote about what happened to him and, and what, what happens to everyone who is awakened to King Jesus. So take a look at this in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age, he's talking about his life before he met Christ. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's saying he was blinded uh, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, and this is what happens when you're awakened to Jesus, let light shine out of darkness that God who said that, God, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Saul's saying here is that before he knew Jesus, he was blinded by the gods of this age. 
and he was prevented from seeing the light of the gospel. But then God said to him, let light shine out of darkness. And he did that to him. And when God did that in Saul's life, partnering with Ananias, he rescued him from darkness. Friends, this is what God wants to do in greater Edmonton. He wants to shine the light of the gospel into the hearts of every single person here, into the hearts and in the minds and the lives of everyone who has been blinded by the gods of this age. He wants to shine his light into the darkness that, that exists in the hearts of everyone who does not know him. Why? Because he wants to awaken greater Edmonton to King Jesus. And the way he's going to do that is by partnering with everyday, ordinary disciples like Ananias who will say, here I am, Lord. That's how he's going to do that. Why? Because these everyday, ordinary, here I am, Lord, sort of disciples know that it's always worth it to take this kind of risk. You know, when we left the States uh, to come back to Edmonton and back to Beulah, we were taking a risk. Uh, we were leaving Nashville, uh, we were leaving behind what was comfortable there, and, and though God was unsettling our hearts beginning in the fall of 2018, we honestly, we just thought that it was circumstantial. But the more we talked about this with Pastor Keith and the elders and prayed about it, the more it seemed like God was just, he was opening up the door for us to return. Now, I wish I could tell you that in that very moment, I was like Ananias, and I said, here I am, Lord, let's go. But I didn't. Um, sadly, in my doubt and in my fear, I said things like this instead. Uh, okay, God, don't you know that the person who typically follows a legacy pastor, you know, someone who's been serving faithfully and so well for the last 30 years, don't you know that the guy following, the person following that legacy pastor is called a scapegoat? <laughs> like, there's a reason when you see these things happen, these transitions happen, there's a reason these people are called scapegoats. Uh, everyone's going to compare me to Pastor Keith, and there's no way that I can live up to his legacy. And then my prayers went to, okay, okay, God. Uh, if you want us to go, we'll go. But can you just, can you just send another scapegoat first? Uh, let them live out first couple of years and then, and then we'll come after, right? Uh, and, and, then, and then it went to, uh, but God, we just got our green cards, which by the way, aren't green. It's so weird, it's like blue and red. Uh, and God, because of these green cards, we can move anywhere we want in the States. And I was like, God, don't you know that it's, it's winter for six months out of the year in Edmonton? <laughs> and then, Lord, if we move back to Canada, you do know that we, like, you, don't, you do know immigration law, right? Like, if we surrender these green cards, we'll never be able to get them again if we ever apply for them. Like, you do know that, right, God? And I wrestled with God. I wrestled with him in my doubt and in my faith, swinging back and forth. And then I remember this one moment when uh, the Lord impressed a lot, the story of Elijah and Elisha on my heart. And the story's at the end of 1 Kings 19 where Elisha was appointed the successor of Elijah. 
And after being appointed as that successor, Elisha then took his oxen and his cart, his means of living to plow the fields, and he slaughtered his oxen, cut up his cart, he cooked the meat, he smoked the meat probably, right? <laughs> he smoked the meat and he gave it to everyone around him and then he went. And in that moment, I knew that that was our here I am Lord moment. So we surrendered our green cards, we took the risk to come back to Canada and follow a legend like Pastor Keith. And you know what, I'm glad that we did. We don't regret it for a moment. Actually, every single day, I am filled with such gratitude and joy that we get to be here. That we get to be here. That God has called, oh, sir, that's, thank you, thank you. Um, and you know, we've experienced many Edmonton winters, so we weren't being tricked or anything like that. But you know what, we're so glad to be back because Edmonton is home, Beulah is home, you are home, we're family. So, so Beulah Church family, as, as we end our time together today, I just, I just want to ask you a very simple question. And, and maybe you want to answer it today, uh, maybe you want to reflect on it over this next week. It's a, it's a very simple question. What sort of disciple are you? Right, what sort of disciple are you? Are you the, you know, everyday, here I am sort of disciple like Ananias? Are you, are you, are you that kind of disciple or, or do you at least want to be? When God taps you on the shoulder to be involved in the lives of those you live, work, study, and play with, um, do you say, here I am, Lord? Do you at least, or, or, or do you at least want to say that? Our vision as a church is to awaken greater Edmonton to King Jesus. And, you know, just like Jesus invited Ananias to be a part of the story of awakening Saul, I believe that he is inviting every single one of us to be a part of awakening someone in our lives to him. It's not just reserved for some people over there. I truly believe that every single one of us, that Jesus wants to invite every single one of us to experience the joy of seeing someone's eyes open for the first time. And then for you to be standing right there and baptizing them. I believe Jesus wants to do that and he's inviting every single one of us into that. So my dear brothers and sisters, uh, may we be the everyday, here I am sort of disciples like Ananias by spending time with Jesus, by trusting Jesus, by praying to Jesus, and by taking risks for Jesus. And may we be the sort of disciples and the sort of church that always takes the kind of risks that Ananias took. And may the first and last words out of our mouths always be, here I am, Lord. Amen? Amen. Lord, let it be so.